Good morning, Four Corners. It's a blessing to gather again on the Lord's Day with God's people to worship Him and to hear from His Word. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. I, uh, I hope you've enjoyed working through Genesis. And maybe before we started this series, maybe for some of you this was a little bit of an obscure book. Um, maybe something unfamiliar, distant from your Christian experience. Uh, or maybe, <laughs> as in my case, it's something that you've tried over the years to do the read through the Bible uh, through the year thing. And you've gotten at least through Genesis, all of those times. And so you probably read Genesis maybe five or ten times over the years. But, uh, that's about it. Maybe into, into Leviticus you fell off the cliff. But it, it has been, for me, as, as, uh, as I've gone through this from a preaching standpoint, it has been such a delight to be able to see the hand of God, to be able to see God's providence. And was recently reading... Uh, a portion in a systematic theology by John Frame. And if you haven't read any John Frame, I think you would be edified very much by it. He's a theologian who has written a massive systematic theology. And just reading his uh, portion on providence and thinking through all of the ways that we have seen God's work, God's providence in the book of Genesis so far. And we've seen this particularly I think in the case of Abraham, as he, God is so intimately at work in the life of Abraham. But for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this person named Lot. Uh, probably not your favorite biblical character. Uh, the apostle Peter refers to him none, nonetheless as a righteous man. And maybe, as it has been the case in our gospel community group, you have toiled over the question of how in the world this man can be righteous, how he could be described as righteous. I mean, you read him in, you read his story, and there's not much to commend at all. Little bits there. He shows hospitality like Abraham, and he is contrasted with all the men of Sodom. He calls what they want to do wickedness and evil. So we do see it. But the narrative itself leaves us kind of scratching our heads, but it's confirmed by 2 Peter 2, 7 to 8, where we get this reflection on Lot. And this is what Peter says. I've read bits of this before. I want to read it again. Righteous Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So Peter's pulling back the veil a little bit, giving us some information about what's going on behind the scenes. And even more in this latter part, he says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It's interesting. Peter calls Lot righteous three times in this passage. Righteous Lot, righteous Lot, righteous Lot. He describes him as being tormented in his righteous soul because he's living in this sewer of a place called Sodom. Lot was a believer in the one true God. God had shown him favor and granted him faith. Remember, faith is a gift of God, and God had given Lot faith. He had shown him favor, and yet he made a mess of his life. And we talked last week about how we can make a mess of our lives as well. We... uh, Those of us who will just very quickly fall back on, well, God's in control. That's a true statement. But anyone who goes through the Christian life falling back on God is in control. 
and uh, referencing all of their sins and, and lack of discipline and lack of devotion to the Lord, referencing all that back to God is in control and therefore justifying a lax Christian life. The point that was made last week is that's a lot like Christian, Christian life and we will end up in the cave with a fruitless Christian life if we follow that pattern. So he made a mess of his life. He left Abraham and moved towards Sodom. And then he moved into Sodom, the wicked city. He gave his daughters over to marry wicked men. He lingered in the city as it was about to be destroyed. He argued with angels. Uh, Holly Corin in our group this week, uh, she really emphasized that. You know, I mean, the audacity of this, of this man that he's sitting there. He's already seen them blind the men at the door. And they're rushing him out with such earnestness. And they know that he can tell that something awful is about to happen to the city. He's seen their power. He's seen that they are from the Lord. They've, they've, they've commented clearly that that's the case. And he's arguing with these angels. It, it is quite a bit of audacity. The same kind of audacity we saw with Abraham as Abraham gives him the choice of the land and Lot is very quick to take that choice in hand and go with the best portion for himself. He provided the cultural and familial background that would lead to his daughter's incestuous act. Yes, it is true that what happens in that cave was, uh, was a sinful act of those two daughters. Lot did not know. The text is clear. And like I said last week, commentators wrestle with this. Like, well, I mean, come on. Really? Did he really? He didn't know. The text is emphatic. It's very clear. He didn't know. He was out of it. And the mechanics and dynamics of that, I don't think any of us wants to explore. But nonetheless, what we have here is Lot not being culpable in the incest itself. Nonetheless, all of the background material infused into the lives and hearts of these two daughters is very much part of Lot's culpability. But as we approach our passage for this week, we remember that it wasn't just Lot who made foolish choices. It was also Abraham who made foolish choices. Lot needed a savior, and Abraham needed a savior. Lot was prone to wonder, and so was Abraham. So I just want to challenge you, ask you this question. Maybe last week you got a little puffed up. So maybe last week I asked the question, uh, are you living a lot like Christian life? And maybe as you're listening to that, your mind, you began to think of maybe some folks in your life, in your family who are living a lot like Christian life. Or maybe you began to think about some folks even in this church who you think are living a lot like Christian life. And maybe as you did that, you were kind of puffed up in yourself thinking, well, that's not me. I'm not living a lot like Christian life. I'm more like Abraham. Not like Lot. Not like Lot's wife. I'm not like Lot. I'm more like Abraham. Listen to this verse from the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. 
Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Whether you are more like Lot or more like Abraham, so you think. Either way, whether more like Lot or more like Abraham, this is our only hope and our only prayer. God's grace. And we see that right out of this Lot narrative. I mean, it is on account of Abraham that Lot is rescued and spared. And so Abraham is just towering large. We haven't seen his craziness since Hagar, his foolishness. And now we come right out of the Lot incident and we don't even get to take a breath before we get more human folly here with Abraham, Lot was prone to wonder, Abraham was prone to wonder, and you and I are too. Apart from God's grace, we will wander off the cliff. So we come today to another stain on the canvas of Abraham's story. Back in chapter 12, verses 10 to 20, we saw Abraham move into Egypt at a time of crisis. This is very early in the Abrahamic story, very early in the Abrahamic narrative that we have in Genesis. He he moves down into Egypt at a time of crisis. There was a severe famine in the land of Canaan. We saw him arm himself, what? With prayer? With God's strength? No. He armed himself with a lie. He would say that his wife, Sarah, was just his sister. So that when they saw her beauty, and this was several years ago, when they saw her beauty, they would not take him out and take her in. And so he came up with this lie. He armed himself with a lie. And we saw him put God's purposes in jeopardy. The Pharaoh took Sarah to be his wife. Take it into Pharaoh's palace. This was way back in chapter 12. On the human side of things, That story was one of independence, recklessness, and deception. But it was also a story of God's provision and power of his grace and faithfulness. And we saw that when we looked at those latter verses of chapter 12. We saw Abraham's folly or Abram's folly, but we saw God's faithfulness. God afflicted Pharaoh so that Sarah was returned to Abraham. And they both were able to leave unharmed with many possessions. So I entitled that sermon, The Faithful God and the Feeble Faith. So what about today? As we come to chapter 20, we have a repeat really of chapter 12. So we get to see this happen again. And you might be thinking, how in the world could this happen again? And we, we read later, Isaac does it as well. Like father, like son. He does the very same thing. But here Abraham does again what he had done before. He repeats his folly. This is recklessness repeated. It's a different time, a different king, a different set of circumstances. But the same feebleness on man's part and the same faithfulness on God's part. So the title for the sermon this morning is Feebleness and Faithfulness Revisited. If you will go ahead and stand with me, we're going to read this passage, Genesis 20, 
verses 1 to 18. Feebleness and faithfulness revisited. Isn't it amazing, before I read this, just to say that God always puts these two things together. We got that in Genesis chapter 3, the the most awful moment in human history, that and the cross, the most awful moment that that caused everything to go wrong. We see in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve sinning, and we see God providing clothing, providing a promise We see God's faithfulness at every turn. And in every moment of our sin, we see the same thing. We turn to him and he shows his grace to us. So let's read Genesis 20 verses 1 to 18. This is God's perfect and profitable word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male, and, and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's 
wife. You can go ahead and be seated. Once again, an incredible story. Amazing testimony to who the Lord is and what he does and how he relates to his people. So let's pray and ask that God would teach us some things this morning about himself and that that truth would infuse itself into our hearts and and, and into our behavior and that we would live more God-honoring lives as a result of our time together today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You reign supreme over every corner of this universe. Father, you are the king of invisible beings and visible creatures and visible matter. You are over all things whatsoever. Father, we just bow before you this morning and we praise you as our God. We thank you that in this humble setting of a middle school cafeteria, you are manifesting your glory as your church gathers a little expression of your universal church here gathered today, expressing the truth that you are a gracious God abounding in love towards sinners, that you loved us and because of that we love you and that you sent your own son to purchase his bride, to gather up his sheep, those whom you have given him before the foundation of the world as you tell us, In Christ, you chose us before the world began, and you gave us to him as his bride. We praise you, Father, for all the redemptive purposes that you have been working out throughout history. We thank you that as we read Genesis chapter 20, this story that happened 4,000 years ago, that this is our story, that it is through these very events that we stand here and sit here this morning. That it is through these events that we come to be children of Abraham by faith in Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your story. For we know it is your story. Not Abraham's story or Noah's story or David's story or Paul's story. But it is your story, God. We are just here as part of it to bring you glory, trophies for your magnificent mercy. Father, we thank you. That it is not about us. It is not about our comfort or our desires. It is not about our glory, our renown. It is not about all of the things that we want out of life. But it is about you being glorified through us. Even as that blind man was, was blind so that you might be glorified through Jesus healing him. What an incredible reminder to us that all the things that we endure can bring you glory if endured with faith and perseverance. And so, Father, we pray that this morning you would help us to see what's here for us, that we, we would see clearly what you are teaching us from your word, and that it would bear in on our lives, that it would be heavy on our hearts, and that it would change the way we conduct our daily living, and that we would do it because of what you have done for us. Just as you began the Ten Commandments by Proclaiming your salvation, you tell us to obey you out of the context of your fulfilled promises and out of the context of your redemption through the blood of your Son. We praise you, Father, that it is because you have saved us that we have been given hearts to obey you with 
And so we pray that we would be obedient children, that we would be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, that we would let our light shine before men, that our good deeds would be seen, that they might bring glory to our Father in heaven. We pray that you would protect our time, protect our hearts, protect our minds from distraction, and be with the kids, be with the teachers. Would they be zealous for their work? And would the kids hear the truth of Christ and be converted by your sovereign grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll notice on your bulletin, there are three things this morning that we want to consider as we walk through chapter 20. And as I said last week, these are just a means of getting into the text and seeing what God has revealed here for us. And so we've got the promise protected first. And secondly, we have the deception denounced. Third, the resolution reached. So let's look first at the promise protected, because that is what is going on in this passage. More than anything else, that's what's going on. So let's look again at these first seven verses in more detail. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his sister, Sarah, his wife, sorry, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you. And you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. It's interesting here that uh, this king Abimelech may have heard, or more than likely had heard, of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the things that happened there. And who knows what he ascribes that to or who he ascribes that to. But, but it, clearly he is in a fearful state coming out of this dream. While the setting in chapter 12 was Egypt, here Abraham has, for whatever reason, journeyed further into southern Canaan. And chapter 21 of Genesis refers to this area as the land of the Philistines. Now, you'll probably know of the Philistines most by the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is this great Philistine giant, and he goes out. David fights him, trusting in the Lord, the entire army with its king Saul, uh, cowering, and David goes out. Trusting in the Lord, this teenage boy, trusting in the Lord's strength and not his own. And through David, God kills this Philistine giant. That's probably uh, how, what you associate with the Philistines. But here we've got an early account of where they are. They've traveled there and they are living in this area. This is the land of the Philistines. And here we have a repeat of chapter 12. As I said before, Abraham says, Sarah is his sister. And the king takes her into his palace. In chapter 12, it was Pharaoh. Here it is Abimelech. And we will get to Abraham's folly. I want to take a moment. I want to just hold that off for a little bit. We'll talk about Abraham's folly and deception in our next point. But for now, I want you to notice what the Lord does in these 
verses. He comes to this pagan king in a dream and makes a grave threat. Look at verse 3. This is what he says to him. Behold, you are a dead man. God has already afflicted him. Uh, probably some sort of a, a deathly affliction, some sort of disease or something. You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, before we go any further into what's going on here with Abraham in particular, I want you to notice God's attitude towards marriage because it's important. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a side point, but notice at this stage that God does not say to him, she is the special man whom I have chosen's wife. She's not his. She's not a, a particular man's wife. She's just a man's wife. And I think what that tells us is that that in and of itself is a problem. For the Lord, we know, given the larger narrative and where we're headed, that the issue, the larger issue, the more the weightier, more significant issue is that this is Abraham's wife. But here we have just these basic words. She is a man's wife. So before we go any deeper, we need to notice God's general concern for the purity of marriage. That God cares that our marriages are free from being defiled. And there are all sorts of things that defile our marriages. Daydreaming about someone else. These fantasies in our minds may be about another life with someone else. Or perhaps looking at pornography. Or taking a look at someone else for longer than you should. Giving that second or that third glance. Or perhaps... Having an adulterous affair itself. This text reminds us that God cares deeply about each of our marriages. There's not a marriage represented in this church that God does not have his hand upon and caring about in intimate ways. So, in any way, shape, or form that we move towards defiling our marriages or taking away from the purity of our marriages. We need to see here, this is the attitude of the Lord towards that. Towards those sins. Then the king offers his defense. God comes to him in a dream, gives him this strong threat. And the king, Abimelech, offers his defense, appealing to his innocence and to justice. He did not know Sarah was Abraham's wife. Or for that matter, he did not know that this woman was any man's wife. He says in verse 5, In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. The Lord recognizes that this is indeed the case. God does not... Uh, argue with Abimelech. Abimelech is a pagan king. There's no indication that he sees any special status for the Lord. Just some deity who's coming to him who clearly has power and who clearly is not happy with what he's doing. Nonetheless, the Lord recognizes that it is true. This is indeed the case. But the reason Abimelech has not touched her is because the Lord has protected her. It's not because of Abimelech. 
It's not because he has this pure, unadulterated heart. He's a a wicked, idol-worshiping king. He's a pagan. There's no indication that he worships the true God. And had he not been restrained, he would have touched her. He would have put his hands on her. He would have taken her and done with her as he wished. But the Lord says, it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God was working so as to, in in Abimelech's mind, in Abimelech's circumstances, maybe even in the affliction that God had given him, he is working so that Sarah remains untouched. For Abimelech, life and death hang in the balance. If he returns Sarah to Abraham and seeks the intercession of Abraham, God's prophet, then he will live. By the way, this is the first time that the word prophet appears in the Bible. It's, uh, that's one of the fun things I think about going through Genesis is we get the first occurrence of grace. We get the first occurrence of covenant. We get the first occurrence of blessing. And here we see the first occurrence of the word prophet. If... He gives Sarah back to Abraham and asks Abraham to intercede for him. Then he will live. If not, he will die. Dying you shall die. Same language found in Genesis chapter 2. When God came to Adam and said, if you eat of that, in the day you eat of that, dying you shall die. You shall surely die. So... This is life and death hanging in the balance. And I think the Lord is showing us two major things through this interaction. Two major things that we need to grab hold of as we think about this interaction between God and this pagan king Abimelech. First, God is showing his lordship over all nations. One of the things that we maybe have forgotten since we've been studying Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is we've really been dealing with, and this is, I know, an anachronism. It's kind of saying something later for something, early, something that comes later for something earlier. That we really are dealing with the church, so to speak. The church in the sense of God's people together. God's covenanted people. We're dealing here with Abraham and, and God's direct relationship to Abraham. And, of course, Lot on account of Abraham. Very much in-house, if you will. God and his people but as we, as we trickle down into southern Canaan and we get God interacting with this man Abimelech, we are reminded that God is the Lord of the nations. It takes us back to the earlier chapters of Genesis. Remember where you have Noah and his three sons and God is overseeing everything. He's overseeing even Cain and his wicked descendants all the way up to the sinfulness of the world before the time of Noah. And then God is there preserving Noah and his three sons And then we have all of the nations that spread over the face of the earth in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with the Tower of Babel. But it's been some time since we have been reminded of this. And here again, we are reminded that God exercises his lordship everywhere over all nations. He controls this pagan king's actions, any sin committed by this king is a sin against him. You remember David? 
David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. That's the case for every person in the world. Every person who sins, sins against God. His lordship is over every nook and cranny across space and time. God reveals himself as he pleases, to whom he pleases, and he holds the power of life and death. The God of Abraham is the Lord of all. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? At the end of the day, that is our apologetic. We can explain to the unbelieving ear why it is that we can trust the Gospels, why it is that the Bible is self-authenticating, why it is that the Bibles we hold today are historically reliable and reliable translations of ancient manuscripts themselves copied reliably by scribes going back to an inerrant autograph breathed out by God. And we can talk about faith and science and so forth. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this is the Christian message. The Lord is sovereign over every ounce, over every atom and cell in his universe. Who are you, O man, to answer back to this God? That tells us also that he is Lord, even where he is not worshipped. He is Lord in the most pagan of places. Recently, we saw uh, a person come through our church who went back to his home country. I won't say too many details, but he went back to his home country where there aren't many Christians. In fact, the place where he's from, he, he was here only for a short time, and he was converted here, attending the church. And through one of our, our, uh, our brothers here who was, who was ministering to him, he's gone back now to his country, and he says, I don't know a single Christian there. A single Christian. God is Lord there. He's Lord there, even where there's not a single Christian, so it seems to him. God will be with him. The Lord will watch over him. And the Lord will use him there. He is Lord, even where he is not worshipped. Second, we are told that all of this power, all of this authority, all of this sovereign control is at the service of his faithfulness. God exercises his lordship over all nations, over all people for the purpose. Think of it as a funnel, all of God's power, all of his authority funneling down through his faithfulness to his promise, all at the service of his faithfulness, which means all of God's promises to you, Christian, are backed by all the glory that we see in the pages of Scripture about this God, all of his power and sovereignty backing his promises to you. He is faithfully protecting his promise. God has promised Abraham a son through Sarah. In their old age and in the face of barrenness, God has promised that through this seed, salvation will come to all the peoples of the world. And remember, this takes us back to Genesis 3. See, we've been looking at God's faithfulness so far to the promise that he made to Abraham. But this is the fascinating thing about the Bible. Is maybe we've lost sight of what this whole seed thing is about. It's been a while since we've been in those early chapters of Genesis. And so maybe we're just seeing this as God's faithfulness to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. And he's going to bring about Abraham's descendant through whom the whole world will be blessed. But what we're reminded of is God's promise to Adam and Eve. 
as he condemned the serpent, God said in Genesis 3.15, that one of Eve's descendants would crush the head of Satan. We're talking about cosmic salvation. We're talking about the reordering of all things, reversing the fall, all of that to happen through Abraham's descendant. God has promised this seed and that this salvation for all people and for the whole world will come. God will not let the accomplishment of these promises fail. And so Christian, God will faithfully protect his promise to you to give you eternal life. Just as certainly as he works to protect his promise to Abraham to bring about this seed, he will not let it not happen. God will not let it not happen that you receive eternal life. He will keep you till the end if you belong to him. Maybe last week you were a little discouraged. Maybe you left feeling quite like a a failure. Maybe you are a lot like Lot. Maybe you are in the cave. And what you need to be reminded of is this. If Christ is your Lord, if Christ is your Savior, if you have been given faith in Him and love for Him, nothing, nothing from outside or inside can take you away from the destination that He has prepared for you. Nothing. You will be in heaven and a new heaven and a new earth. You will reign with Christ. You will know God in your body eternally in bliss. We will inherit the earth. We will be with our Savior who has gone away to prepare a place for us. 1 Peter 1.4, Peter confidently says to the believers, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice what he says. We already have it. It's just being kept. Paul uses the same language in Colossians chapter 3, where he says, when Christ appears, then we will, it will, everything that we've been given in Christ will, will appear also with him. It is hidden with Christ in God. We have an inheritance that is kept for us and it will never be taken away. God will keep it, even in the midst of our folly. And if that encourages you to be foolish, that might mean you're not a Christian. If hearing of God's faithfulness, if hearing of God's faithfulness, even in the midst of our sinfulness, makes you think in your heart and in your mind, well, then I can do whatever I would like because God will remain faithful. That is a really good sign you're not a Christian. Because the Christian hears that message and falls on his or her face and says, praise God for his mercy to a sinner like me. And out of that, wants to please him, wants to do his will because we love him as our father. It's the wicked man or woman. It is the non-believing person who says, great, I'll do what I please. Fall presumptuously on This vague idea of God's grace. That is not the way of the Christian. So we see here that God will bring his promises to fruition. 
Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit inside of us. By the way, Paul tells us in Romans that when we fight sin, those who put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit are those who are the children of God. And the Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. I've heard John Piper explain this so well. He explains that one of the ways we know we're Christians is if we're fighting sin. If we're putting sin to death, that's one of the ways we know that we have the spirit in us who is fighting sin on our behalf and who thereby is crying out to the Father, Abba, Father. It's one of the ways that we know. And if we have the spirit, people of God, if we have the spirit of God, he himself is a guarantee. There's nothing more certain than what God has prepared for us in heaven and the new earth. So... Let's move now to the deception denounced. Look at verses 8 to 13. We see the promise protected. Now we come to the deception denounced. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Here, the sinfulness of Abraham's actions comes clearly into view. What do we have here? Well, these actions are foolish, reckless, deceptive, unkind, unloving, selfish, and lacking in faith. I mean, this is pretty bad. All of that packed into what Abraham is doing here. In these verses, Abraham's actions are denounced both explicitly and implicitly. They are explicitly denounced by Abimelech. And they are implicitly denounced by Abraham's own defense. The text wants us, the text itself, the way the narrative progresses, and the words of Abraham themselves denounce him implicitly. So first, Abimelech, what does he say to him? What have, you done to, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have done? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? And listen to what he says. Now, this is incredible. Because Abimelech has just had God appear to him in a dream. But he's not afraid to walk up to Abraham and say, You didn't do right, man. What you did was wrong. And that is because I think Abimelech recognizes that God is a God of justice. God is a God who calls innocence, innocence, and he calls wrong, wrong. And Abraham has, in fact, done wrong. And so uh, Abimelech has no problem saying to this man, whose God has apparently just come to him and, and is exacting on him some vengeance, and he has no problem saying, I mean, I don't, I don't really care who you are. You didn't do right. You did not do right to me. What did you see that you did this thing? Abimelech 
has brought guilt on his entire people by abducting another man's wife, and even more, the wife of God's prophet. Why, why, why is Abimelech's question. And then we get Abraham's defense. So here's where Abraham's guilt is implicit. Abraham's defense is essentially this. I kind of paraphrase here. Well, I prejudged you all to be wicked murderers. I feared for my own life, so I put my wife in jeopardy. I talked my wife into it by saying, if you love me, you'll do this. And this has been my plan from the beginning. It's a backup plan, you know. Yes, following God, that's what I do. But I need a little human ingenuity to keep myself safe. Lest I die. It's incredible. I mean, that's what he's saying. Oh, yeah, and besides, she is my half-sister anyway. It's incredible. And there is really one major thing that I want to point out about Abraham's actions here. And it's the same thing. This is what I want you to see. This is the big thing you need to see here. That what Abraham does is exactly what he does at the beginning of his walk with God. That's the problem. That's the problem in and of itself. It has been over 20 years since the incident with Pharaoh. Certainly his action was foolish then, but how much more now? 20 some years later, After he's walked with God and seen God and known God and heard from God. Now? Really? At this stage? After he's seen God work to protect and prosper him? After he's enjoyed such intimacy with God and heard such great promises? Even after God had told him that he would die at a good old age in peace? I mean, hasn't God already explained to him how it's all going to go down in the end? He's already told him. Abraham doesn't have to be afraid that he's going to get killed by Abimelech. But he is. Even now. He car- here's, here's another thing to consider. He carried out this deception in chapter 12 as Abram. But he now does it as Abraham. Do you see that? Abraham was the name. God changed his name to Abraham, the father of a multitude. And he changed Sarai's name to Sarah. Now he must say, hi, I am Abraham. And here, this is my sister, Sarah. Remembering all that God has promised him. All that God has confirmed with covenant and reaffirming the covenant and coming in person and Sarah hearing him in the tent and God hearing his prayers and sparing Lot. All of this has happened in the last 20 some years and then he does it again. Wow. I especially like the implication that Kent Hughes draws out of this for us. He says, That here Abraham commits the same old sin. When pressured to trust himself. When pressured, he trusts himself rather than God. That's Abraham's old sin. And then Kent Hughes goes on to say this. Which I think is just so penetrating. There are certain old sins to which each of us are uniquely susceptible. Just let that settle for a moment. Think about that. What is that for you? Maybe at the very beginning of your Christian life, you, 
you might be able to find some kind of looking back now, maybe to be able to find some way of, of seeing that as you are, a, you are a young believer, just a little shoot in the Lord, just a little shoot, a little baby plant. But now you're still doing it. You're still doing it all these years later after God has revealed himself to you and you have been in his word and you have seen his power in your life and it's still there. Why? Why now? Then, why? Why now? After all this time. What a better time than this morning to say no to those old sins. What a better time than this morning to say by God's grace, with the help of his spirit, that old, de- that old sin is going on the cross. I'm nailing that today at the feet of Jesus. Christ died for that sin, and I am done with it. Well, for Abraham, we see those old sins, some of them die very slowly. And here we have the one that he is most susceptible to, his plan B. And what about that? What about that? Those of us who trust God, but, but I have to do this or that and make it happen. And I find this very convicting personally. One of the ways that we can know whether or not that is us is the extent of our prayer life. The extent to which we are either planners and organizers and resolvers versus prayers. That will tell you very quickly whether you are a self-reliant person or an on-your-face-before-God person. And Abraham was teetering between the two. So we see the deception denounced. Thirdly, we see the resolution reached. Look at verses 14 to 18. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So briefly, as we finish up this morning, what is the resolution reached at the end of this narrative? First, Sarah is returned and vindicated. 1,000 pieces of silver. The price for a bride was 50 pieces of silver. This is 20 times that. An overwhelming amount. And the purpose of that is to vindicate Sarah. It is to say loudly and clearly, she did no wrong and she is undefiled. That's the purpose, the stated purpose. As it says, a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. This lavish gift meant to convey that truth alone. She is untouched. Her womb remains undefiled and free for God to work the impossible, which is what God has been about from the beginning. No fear that the baby to be born in less than a year will be Abimelech's baby. No fear of that. 
No hint of that. God wants all to know that he does the impossible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Second, Abimelech makes things right by paying restitution. He gives animals and he gives servants. He gives land. He gives silver. He makes restitution for abducting this woman and to make things right with Abraham and Abraham's God. Third, this is where we'll finish up this morning. It is an opportunity for God to confirm several things in Abraham's life. And this is amazing because this is something to consider that even in our foolishness, even in our sinfulness, even in our bad choices, this is the grace of God. This is Romans eight twenty eight. that God turns all things for good, those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is what God does, that even in our foolishness, once again, if this inspires you towards more foolishness, that itself should be a sign to you that something's wrong in your heart. But as we go through life, we make these foolish choices. God shows up in his kindness and in his grace so as to communicate something to us fresh and new and so as to confirm his grace in our lives. It's incredible. And that's what happens here. This foolish choice of Abraham becomes an opportunity for God to confirm several things in his life. His blessing, look at all the possessions. We remember last time he came out of Egypt with all this stuff. And that's what happens in chapter 13. He's got so much stuff. He's got so many herds that Lot also has all these herds. And now the herdsmen aren't getting along. He's got all this stuff. We see it here too. Now he's got all this silver. Incredible. All these possessions. So we see his blessing confirmed. We see God's grace confirmed. God is telling Abraham You are mine. I will be a God to you. Remember the promise that God made? I will be a God to you. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you forever. I'm not letting you go because you sinned against me. I'm not letting you go because you're foolish. I'm not letting you go because you make these bad choices. You are mine. That's what God is saying to Abraham. He shows him his grace. In the face of his folly, God remains faithful always. He will never lie. He will never be unfaithful to us. He will discipline us, but he will always be faithful. And that is his faithfulness, his discipline. So we see his blessing, we see his grace, and we see his redemptive purposes confirmed. Notice here how embarrassing it must have even been for Abraham that that he brought all this on this man and this kingdom. He prejudged them. He did this with his wife. He, he knows he has not done right by the Lord. And yet God makes it the case that unless Abraham prays for Abimelech, the wombs will be closed and they'll die. What is God doing? He's confirming the fact that through Abraham, even in his sinfulness and weakness and humanity, That through Abraham, God will bring his blessing to the world. And only through Abraham, unless this man prays for you. And unless we look to this man's seed. Unless we look to the man, Christ Jesus. To the God incarnate, Christ Jesus. 
unless we look to him. And he intercedes for us with his precious blood and intercedes for us continually at the throne of the Father unless we have the seed of this man on our behalf interceding for us, we will all perish. For there is salvation in no other man than the God-man, Jesus Christ. Only through him will any person be saved. As we finish this morning, I want you to just notice one last thing. God has the power over the womb. I don't know if maybe you have been trying to get pregnant. And maybe this is something that you and your spouse are really struggling through. I think there's some reassurance here this morning for us that I don't want to miss. And that is that the God who is Lord over every nook and cranny of the universe is Lord over your womb, Christian woman. And he is sovereign and providential. He will care for you whether he gives you a child or not. He is the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father... We are humbled by your word. We praise you for it. We thank you for the seed of Abraham, who is Christ the King. We thank you that we have been put in Christ. What an amazing thing, God, to consider. That we have been united with Christ as branches are to a vine, as a husband is to his wife. We are to Christ. We praise you, Father that you have mercifully given us this salvation, that you have mercifully saved us through Jesus. We thank you for your faithfulness to Abraham and all of his descendants, those who by faith trust in his seed. God, we thank you for the ways you have demonstrated your faithfulness to us throughout our lives. And we pray this morning you bring those to mind so that we can thank you for them. And Father, as for these old sins that we are susceptible to fall into, Father, show us what those are that we would turn from them, that we would grow, truly grow in our faith and confidence in you, that we would put the old self to death more and more every day, that we would live in the reality that we are new creatures in Christ, renewed in our minds and our hearts by your Holy Spirit, and given an inheritance that can never be taken away. Would we live in this reality in life, And in death, we are not our own, but belong to God. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.